In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges, chapter 16. Samson's physical strength is no match for his libido. In this chapter, he engages with a prostitute, which gives opportunity for the Gazites to attack him, and another opportunity for Samson to demonstrate his supernatural strength. He then falls in love with a woman named Delilah, another Philistine, who is then convinced by the Philistine rulers to use her relationship with Samson to discover the secret to its power. It's a true story of seduction and tragic betrayal that ends with Samson's death. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Wednesday, April 19th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. My appreciation goes out to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions support Thy Strong Word. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is a ministry which provides Lutheran Christian resources in various languages around the world. Visit them online to learn more about their work and how to get involved. That again is Lutheran Heritage Foundation at lhfmissions.org. Well, joining us this morning to help finish up the Samson narrative in Judges uh, is, well, the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kewanee, Illinois. Uh, pastor Eckhart, come back to the show. Good to be back. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. Well, you know, I think last time we were on together, we were discussing, oh, was it? Something in Exodus, Exodus I think. Yeah, uh, I think It's so. been a little while, but I'm so glad to have you back. And this is a great chapter to be on. You know, it's, it is the final chapter of Samson, who's the final judge featured in Judges. But, you know, it has little twists and turns, and it's one that's pretty familiar to most, uh, most folks, I think. It's a, it's a Sunday school favorite, at least parts of it are. Uh, but I look forward to learning something new today. Um, what? How have things been going since we last uh, talked, though? Has your Holy Week been good? Uh, Easter tide going oh, well was, for you? Yes, it was wonderful. We had, uh, as usual, the, uh, the great services of Holy Week and uh, capped off by, of course, the Easter sunrise service, which everybody enjoyed. So, And then, of course, I had a little time to recover from all that. So things are mo- moving along pretty well, I'd say. Thank you for asking. Yeah, Hope it's still a slow. Good as well. Yeah, it was. It was wonderful. But yeah, this has been kind of a slow week. I've been taking it slow, and I think that's a that's a good advice for any pastor. Just take it slow that week after Easter. Nothing wrong with that. I think so. Yes, absolutely. Well, brother, would you like to lead us then in a little prayer before we dive in to Samson here? Sure. Uh, let us pray. O God, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen, brother. Well, so yesterday we covered Judges chapter 15. It it ended with uh, heaps upon heaps of dead bodies and a jawbone in the hand of Samson. Uh, Then he went and he was thirsty. God split open a hollow place at Lehi and out came water and he drank and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 
years. Now we pick up with Samson and Delilah. Uh, the, well, we'll eventually get to Delilah. Anything that you want the people to know, though, before we start reading our first few verses? Well, I think it's a, it's a fascinating story. Uh, I think as we get into this chapter in particular, we see we will see some things that are uh, rather head scratchers. You know, they, they sort of look or perhaps even to some people read like a legend or a parable or a story that isn't true. And I think that's unfortunate because we forget, uh, they forget at least, that God is quite capable of using the pages of history itself to get his messages across. So I think uh, with that in mind, I think let's go into it because we'll find out some rather fascinating things about Samson and his his uh, his <laughs> his deal with, well, first there was a harlot, then there was Delilah, and of course yeah. this is a continuation of some of the things that had been going on in Samson's uh, period of judging over 20 years. So it, it just continues and ends up in a rather, uh, um, a rather amazing way. He definitely has a, a problem with the ladies. Let's just say that. We're going to read just that first part, uh, what happened in Gaza. We won't have gotten to Delilah just yet, but here we go. 16 verses 1 through 3. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night long, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we'll kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carry them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. All right, that's sort of the end of that whole uh, incident, at least so far, right? We don't really hear the Gazites. Uh, obviously, he defeated them in the sense that they're hiding, and he just grabs the city doors and hauls them off. Take us through that. Um, you know, Samson, when he does something, he goes big, and this is another example. What's fascinating to me about this is that we have a very conflicted figure here in Samson because on the one hand, as everybody can see, he's, uh, his, his morals are uh, questionable to say the least. I mean, he, you know, he's going into a harlot here. And, I mean, sometimes people try to explain this away, and that's rather difficult to do. Clearly, Samson has, has fallen to his sinful desires. At the same time, what's fascinating to me is how he continues nevertheless in in the strength which God has given him to be a kind of a Christ figure. And that I think that causes some consternation for people, but I don't think it should. I think that we need to recall that all of the Christ figures in Scripture have been sinners. And some in some cases, their sins have been more evident than in others. But it's clear that it is these carrying off of the of the doors of the gate with Samson's great strength. I mean, there you have a wonderful picture of exactly what Christ our Lord does in defeating the devil and carrying off the gates of hell. So it's it's really fascinating how this judge portrays the strength of God, and of course, at length, that's the strength of Christ in defeating the devil. The 
one of the helpful things, I believe, about the Old Testament is that it shows in clear, I, I would say, in in good pictural form, the underlying theology, which cannot so much be seen in the way in which Christ defeats the devil. You know, Christ conquers the devil. He he defeats the strong man, as he put it. But you can't see that. All you see is his humiliation, and then you see his even his uh, even his resurrection is only seen by the faithful. And it's it's not a majestic conquering of evil. It's it's uh, simply something that we know is true because of his resurrection and so forth. But if you want to get the the visual image of what's going on here, you look to such accounts as Samson's exploits in the book of Judges. So I'd, I'd start with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and this is maybe just a little simplistic note, but I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, he's in Gaza, which is a Philistine city, a pretty big stronghold at this time. He pulls up these gates, and I guess regardless of their uh, typifying qualities to Christ, I, I guess I just have to remind people that he carries them 40 miles <laughs> to Hebron. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is this is something that a lot of people are also seeing, and, and, and he goes to the top of the hill, so everybody sees it, and and I told you that, uh, or, you know, I mentioned that the the people, what the men did, their response isn't noted. Uh, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be surprised if they were sleeping because they were waiting for the early morning. But he just, I guess, they were woken up by him tearing up these these doors to the city. They would have been yeah, clearly. I, he, I definitely appreciate clearly your has, imagery here. Has clearly has superhuman strength. There's no question about that. I mean, everybody sees it as you as you noted. So it's it's rather fascinating. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, the visual imagery though you give us of Christ and the gates of hell, and uh, that's certainly something I hadn't considered, but I think is an, an excellent way to look at this. And you talk about Christ figures, and people do get hung up. I I lead a um, well, I have seasonally led a class on modern movies and Christ figures in them. One of my favorite uh, Christ figure movies is Cool Hand Luke. And in Cool Hand Luke, you know, he's a, he's a criminal, a, a criminal rightly uh, adjudicated for his crimes. And then he even breaks out and even has pictures with, you know, uh, you know, scantily clad women. And, and it's tough sometimes for people to understand the difference between uh, imagery that is to evoke Christ-like characteristics, especially when they're applied to a person who is decidedly unchristlike. That's hard enough in fictional movies, but when you add it to something like the scriptures, and the scriptures are really presenting them as real-life, true-to-life Christ figures, yeah, people get hung up on the fact that they are sinners. And it's like, well, listen, you know, they, of course they're sinners, because if they weren't sinners, they would be the Christ, as opposed to just a type or figure. It's, it's amazing to me that you should bring up Cool Hand Luke, because as, as happenstance is, I was just watching that movie like two days ago for the first time in probably, I don't know, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And uh, it's amazing that you can see those images uh, in, that, in that movie, which you're absolutely right. The, the Christ figures in literature and in the movies and so forth are everywhere. 
And of course, in the Bible, the the difference is that these are real life things. Right. Uh, in fact, one of my one of my uh, constant uh, hobby horses is to remind people that you don't need books of sermon illustrations to make your point in your sermon. The, the illustrations are all right there. It's just it's called the Old Testament. There's your book of sermon illustrations, and here's a great one. I think I agree with you. Yeah, and there's still so much of the Old Testament that modern Christians are extremely unfamiliar with, myself included. You know, I mean, despite yeah, us, oh yeah, even if you're someone who's read through the Bible, you know, it's still every now and then you'll stumble across something and you'll think about it in a new way, and you'll go, I just never thought about it in that way, and that happens to me all the time on this program, which is wonderful for me. Well, let's move here on. You then. Have, in, b- before we move on, one more thing, as you brought sure. up, this is in Gaza. This is in the land of the Philistines that this happens. And of course, we know that Christ descended into hell, and the Philistines are a sort of a type of hell. Mm-hmm. Samson's not even in his own land. He's in their land, and he carries off their gates. So there you see it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but. Couldn't no, help, that's okay, because that'll definitely, that'll definitely preach, brother. I love it. <laughs> so let's read verses 4 through 9, which gets us started into the narrative surrounding Delilah. Here we go. After this, he loved a woman in the Valtorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him. To humble him, and we will give each, we will each give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, "Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you." And Samson said to her, "If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man." Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an upper chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snapped when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Well, you know, (laughs) Samson's had a number of failed, uh, let's say, interpersonal relationships. Uh, this one, which we know goes on for a while, but I don't see why it goes on from a while. This seems like, well, this is a one and done. Clearly, you're not with me, honey. I think I'm going to move on. Uh, but of course, he's going to keep going. But starting at the very, I guess, top of this narrative, he is it significant that he loves this woman? I don't know that we've heard that before in Samson's story. Yeah, I noticed that, too, that, I mean, he just got finished with this harlot in Gaza, and it doesn't say he loved her. It just says he went into her, and we know what that means. Well, now we got this woman whom he loved, and I think that's not insignificant because, I mean, there you see his his uh, downfall. There you see his, his own, uh, the desires of his heart getting in the way. Um, it's not just his... Uh, it's not just that he went into her. It's that he he had an affection for her. He um, he got her he got her in his head in a way that in in some sense sort of replaced his dedication to God. I think, and so yeah, that gets him yeah. uh, into deep trouble. 
And I think he's really obviously naive, which maybe is another sign that, you know, he he is so blind by his by his love or his lust or whatever you call it, that he can't see what is so abundantly clear to us as we go through this story. I mean, Samson, what's the matter with you? Can't you see what she's doing? And well, evidently he can't because it keeps happening, although he does not tell her the truth. So that's one thing. Um, and I don't honestly know what to make of that until finally he does. So right. whatever is going on here, he's he's conflicted, perhaps. I don't on know if I hand, have a well, I, was say, I don't know if I have a compelling theory, but I will say that one of the things I've noticed about Samson is that he doesn't seem very bright, but at the same time likes to think of himself very pridefully as being the smartest guy in the room. And this goes all the way back to his <laughs> ridiculous um, his uh, his uh, riddle that he gives the Philistine people. You know, and and the riddle, of course, is impossible. It's designed to be impossible, but I think it's designed to be impossible not because he wants to get the the winnings from the the gamble he makes with them, but it's impossible because he likes feeling smarter than everybody. So he comes up with a riddle that really cannot point. be solved. Yeah. So I then we come right. here, yeah, and so I think there's naivete, but then when he doesn't tell her, I just wonder if him not telling her the truth isn't so much because at this point he's suspicious that she's going to try to hand him over to the Philistines, but wonder if it's just sort of like, well, if I told her that's something that I would, that she would know that I know, and I want to continue to be the smartest guy in the room. So he, he, he gives her something that isn't true so that he can kind of sit back and go, Oh, what a silly woman. That's not even true. And you believe it, but still in what happens though, at some point you got to say, Okay, I'm going to put these together. She she says the words, "The Philistines are upon you, Samson." And of course, he breaks it out pretty easily. Is no problem. But it's is nothing sort of cranking in his head, going, "Well, that was kind of convenient. You asked me, you asked me how to bind me, and then you bound me, and we don't know what the context is that she convinced him to try to be bound. And then suddenly, these guys are attacking me. Oh, honey, that's kind of convenient. I don't know. I, it, it seems suspicious." Well, I, yeah, I think you're right. And something else just occurred to me here that, I mean, we, this is, here I go thinking of Christ again, but um, in, in the case of Christ, we, of course, believe that in his, in his humanity, in his human nature, he doesn't have divine strength. His divinity, his divine strength is communicated or given to his human nature. So he is as a man, as strong as Samson, but he doesn't use his his divine strength in the flesh. And here, in a way, uh, Samson is still able to to break those bowstrings easily, although for a time it appears as though maybe he he doesn't. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm using this too much, but I think at least you can make an illustration out of it. And I don't know what to make of these seven bowstrings. Why seven? I don't know. Um, and I think that the number seven comes up later. Seven, yeah, seven keeps coming up. And I don't well, let's understand hear what, why that is either. 
Well, let's hear what happens and and see what happens next, because in verses 10 through 12, well, wouldn't you know it? It happens again. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in inner chamber, and they snapped, the, but he snapped the ropes off of his arms like a thread. And then she's going to go on to say, you've mocked me again. So, so right after, I guess we're not told how long after, or it certainly wouldn't be immediately after, I wouldn't think. So I don't know how long after, but she basically is mad at him because when he was attacked, he actually wasn't bound. And so she says, hey, you mocked me. You told me a lie. That's not fair. Now tell me the truth. And he gives her a new, a new lie. Um, yeah. What, help me understand what, what is... We, I guess we kind of see Delilah's motivation. She wants to be paid for handing over Samson. Clearly the love is not uh, requited. But why does he keep falling for this? Or or maybe he's not, obviously, because he's not giving her the true answer. Maybe he is smarter than her. I don't know. What's going on? Well, I think that um, it's, it's probably something that's happening over an extended period of time. So uh, he maybe he forgets. Who knows? But he doesn't. He doesn't change his approach. He doesn't give her the true secret. He tells her something that, well, he tells her a lie. And she she keeps saying, well, what's the matter? You've mocked me again. Well, of course, duh, good thing I did. I mean, that's what we want to think. But Samson doesn't. And I I think that in, in one respect, it shows the blindness of his love or his lust. I mean, he is just utterly blind. It's sort of, you know, it reminds me of other occasions where, uh, like the uh, the Israelites and the golden calf. I mean, were they so stupid that they thought they could get away with that? And Aaron, I mean, th- these kinds of things are, are amazing to me because it it seems as though there's a there's a missing ingredient here. It seems like Samson's Samson's either on the one hand, utterly stupid, or on the other hand, he just, he wants to play with her some more. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and her attitude reminds me a lot of, say, a a wife who's uh, cheating on her husband, and then he finds out by looking in her phone, and he comes to her and he says, I've looked in your phone and I've discovered that you're cheating. And she goes, how dare you look in my phone? Like, he's the one in trouble <laughs> for finding yeah. out. So she's trying to get him tied up. And she has these guys pounce on them, and then it doesn't work. And then, then she's like, you know, hey, how dare you have lied to me? And as you said, it's yeah, a good thing. Absolutely. And it's, it's clearly not reciprocal love. No. She's 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 just got self interest here. In fact, he's she's 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 being paid, right? She's about to be paid. Um, the lords see, of the Philistines they offer well, to pay her. Say, so that, yeah, 1,100, what, silver coins or something like that from each of these rulers. So who knows how much that it would end up being. Yeah, per ruler. I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of cash, I would think. So I think it's worth noting I that think, in uh, Judges 17, that priest's um, annual— we, we haven't gotten to there. We hadn't got there yet. But his annual spending money was 10 shekels. And so, 
you know, she's getting 1100 Yeah. From each. So. Right. That's a lot. So well, I think there's her motivation. Uh, <laughs> you wonder also, does that mean that she's a kind of a picture of the false church? The, those who you would think would be allied to the Christ figure, but only uh, in appearance. She's she's not genuine. She's well, like like uh, as is the case in in Jesus' life. He he makes it clear that the Pharisees and his enemies are are liars. They're false. They're falsely uh, calling themselves godly. And so the idea of the false church is another image that you can see cropping up all over the place in the Old Testament. And here's a primary example of it. Delilah is a is a false church in a way. Although once again, this is this is just an image. It is not it's not the reality. The reality is in Christ always. But the image here, I think, is that you know Delilah is not faithful. <laughs> She's only faithful to the cash. So you got the Let's, second. Uh, the second one doesn't have seven again, but the third one does no. as, as it's coming up here. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's read that third one so we can get that extra seven in. So verses 13 uh, and 14. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept... Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pen, and then said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, and he pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. So why is she still falling for it at this time? And we, we can easily say why is he still falling for it, but clearly he's not because he's continuing to tell her lies about how he could be subdued. But yet she falls for it. And then I have one other question, too, which stands out. Why is she warning him? <laughs> you know, if she she could just have if she really thought this was going to work, she could should have just done what he said and then maybe skip the part where she screams at him that he's about to be attacked. Maybe a little bit of a sneak attack by the Philistines would give them a better. It, it's 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 almost like a comedy of errors, brother. Yeah. And um, it's I think you're beginning to see here a little bit of a. A crack in in Samson's armor, so to speak, because it's getting closer now to the actual truth, which has to do with his hair, although he doesn't quite go there. So there's, you know, he's it's getting pretty close, I think. But uh, I mean, I think you're right. Delilah kind of reminds me, in a way, of what is, um, a, I think, a, a valid theory about Judas. That, that maybe Judas betrayed Jesus because he wanted to see Jesus do his thing with his enemies because he knew he could. I mean, that's not, that doesn't, doesn't declare it anywhere in Scripture, but I think it's feasible. So in this case, it's possible also with Delilah that she knows this man's great strength and, you know, maybe she wants to force him to use it. So maybe part of her knows that he's going to lie to her and she still wants to see it. It's it's hard to tell, but uh, there's something going on here that I think is getting a little bit closer to the truth. Um, but again, you've got the number seven also. Maybe, 
Why and why does he have seven locks of hair? <laughs> right. I don't I, you know. know. It makes a lot of sense, though. You're, I, I love that what you just said, though, about how maybe part of her at least wants to see him put on a show for her. I mean, she's she's wanting to get paid, but so so long as, as she's getting paid too, she wants to see how he's going to respond. Which I guess would explain my question about why she keeps warning him: the Philistines are upon you. And, and we're getting ready to head into a break, but just like in a few sentences, do you know if Delilah is a Philistine? I, I guess I characterized her as a Philistine, or is she a Israelite who's sympathetic to the Philistines? I don't know. I don't know if we're told because it's just odd that she phrases it as the Philistines are upon you. Well, if what you say is true, that she wants to see a show, then you might say she's certainly acting like a Philistine because we know that at the end of this, the Philistines want him to put on a show for them when they've got him bound. You know that we're coming to that. So he's, he's acting like one. It's I don't know. I've yeah. never thought of her as an Israelite, but uh, that's an interesting theory. Well, I, I think I mean, of Herod, too, wanting Jesus to put on a show. Well, there's that, too. Yeah, sure. So I think this is the uh, the way of the false church, again, that they want to see the glory of God. They live by what Luther would call a theology of glory rather than a theology of the cross and suffering. And so there's there's the, the false view of Delilah. She's she's this is not the way to God. And well, what she sees. Well, I'll tell you what, we're br- brother, we're up against a hard break, so we're gonna take that. So folks, don't go anywhere when we return. Pastor Eckhart and I will keep on going through Judges sixteen. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kiwani, Illinois. Friends, thanks for gathering around God's Word with us this morning as we study Samson in the book of Judges. You know you can reach out to me with questions or comments at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook to say hello. And if you are liking Thy Strong Word and what we do here, why not share it with others? Life Strong Word airs on AM 850 in St. Louis, or you can stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org. You can also find it on your favorite podcasting service, subscribe to it, you'll never miss an episode. Or you can do what I do and use the KFUO app, available for both Android and iPhone. It's a great app, and not only do you get Thy Strong Word, but you can get connected with all of KFUO's great programming. 
Regardless, I've appreciated that you have chosen to grow in your faith with me and my guests today, and let's get back to it. Now, Pastor Eckhart, before the break, we were finally at where, and what you were saying is, and it's something I had noticed, he is getting closer right now, at least, even though we don't quite understand the seven locks of his head, maybe that's just his hairstyle, he is talking about hair now, he's getting very close, and we happen to know that the next time is the time he he. He, he gives it away. Anything else you want to say before we read that part? Well, yeah, I think uh, maybe we can talk about it in, in a little bit, but I think it's helpful to remember that he was a Nazarite from his birth, and there was a clear indication that he was never to uh, have wine or strong drink or cut his hair because he's a Nazarite. Um, and in fact, the, the whole beginning of Samson's life is a kind of a reminder of Christ because you've got this, you know, his mother is barren and God opens her womb. That seems to be a, a type of the, the virgin birth. And she, she gives birth to this son and he's set apart from his womb. So from his from his birth. So you you, you will see. I mean, I wouldn't even go anywhere near talking about my hair to this woman, because that's getting pretty close to the edge of what he ought not to do, namely touch his hair. So, I mean, we're, it's setting him up for a fall here. Yeah, it really is. I, and, and it just does not make sense. Uh, of course, disobeying God's word never makes sense in, uh, but it just, it, we're clouded by our sinful concupiscence and other things, but it, it just doesn't make sense. He knows what she's going to pull well, you know what? Let's read the next text, and then I guess we'll decide for ourselves. This is going to be the rest of uh, the section. Well, no, it's not the rest of the chapter, but it will be 15 through 22. Here we go. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart, and he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines and said, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that Yahweh had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. All right, we're going to leave that there for now. So here we have, she's using his great love for her against him even though she has demonstrated clearly thrice now that if you tell me I'm going to call the Philistines and they're going to attack you, 
she still somehow <laughs> takes the high road and, or tries to and says, you must not really love me. You say you love me, but you must not really because you keep lying to me. And then day after day after day after day, she nags, I'm sorry, presses him to death. <laughs> Take us through that. He does give in, but it's crazy. We don't understand why. Well, I think it's it's helpful to to see that um, the question of love comes up again and again because we're talking about the difference between the love, the normal love between a man and a woman and the love one ought to have for God. And I think Samson, of course, is confusing these. And now, as opposed to the prior times, he does love her in the way that he should only love his God. I mean, that's abundantly clear now because he gives away what he has been set apart to be and to do from his birth. Now he's, he's giving it away because of his love. I'm putting that in quotation marks for Delilah. And she, she's aware of this. It seems that she's aware that this is different because she saw that he had showed her all his heart. Well, all his heart was dedicated to her now, not merely as a woman, but evidently in a way as a God. And so when it says she made him sleep upon her knees, you know, some people, some commentators suggest that she put something in his drink. Who knows? Um, and why she called for a man to cut off his locks, I don't know. But next thing you know, um, he gets up and he says, well, I'll do what I did the other times. But but he is clearly left trusting God at all. And so now we see what happens when when God is not with him. His strength, we might add, was not in his hair. It never was. But it was in the fact that God had set him apart as a Nazarite. And the hair was merely a sign of that. So now he's no longer set apart. So the Lord departs from him. Yeah, that is and always that, something that's interesting, is the idea that his hair really... It's it's not like a magic token that God had given him, as you had rightly pointed out. It's just a symbol of his dedication to God, and not just in this moment, but over the course of you know his life, at least the details that the author of Judges wishes to give us, he has demonstrated the fact that not only is he very, uh, I guess, um, very susceptible to certain types of temptation, especially when it comes to women, he tends to rely on his strength, which is from God, as if it is his own thing, that he is the source of his strength. Maybe he actually, maybe he actually didn't know how uh, that, that his strength could be taken away, perhaps even convinced by the time he tells her that it's his hair, that he's thinking, nothing can take my strength away because that's who I am, forgetting, of course, that it is God. Um, and and so when this final thing happens, it just makes me wonder if it had anything to do with his hair at all. It's just at this point, the Lord finally leaves him. I, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think in another way, the Lord does not altogether leave him. And what I mean by that is that the Lord continues to use him as an object lesson, as a real life object lesson, the putting out of his eyes is, I think, an object lesson of, of the inability of, of Samson to see God, to see what God would have him do and be. He, is, he was already blind before they put out his eyes, I think. And now, in his blindness of his eyes, 
he finally, when he's put to the, uh, you know, they put him, they put him to, uh, to do these things that our one person said was only fit for women to do. I don't know about that, but clearly he's been greatly humiliated to the point where he repents and his hair begins to grow. And now that he's blind in his eyes, he actually becomes less blind in his heart at the end. I would certainly agree with that. You know, I don't know how much to make of verse 17, though. You know, he told her all his heart, and he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head because, or for, I have been a Nazarite to God. But he doesn't use the word Yahweh, the divine name. He uses the word Elohim. And mm-hmm. if we look back, we're going to actually find that he's never used the divine name. He only uses the divine name in our next section when, as you say, after being blinded, he finally is calling upon his Lord Yahweh. Uh, again, oh, I, I don't want to make a, too much of that, but there's something there. I think that's a great observation, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's too often missed, but you're right. I mean, at the end, he becomes the greatest uh, of all of his indications of being a Christ figure. Now comes the greatest of all when he will do this sacrificial thing. Yeah. So, let's yeah. read it. Let's and read it so people he can hear. Upon the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. So this is going to be verses 23 through uh, the very end of the chapter, verse 31. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice as they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held them by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to Yahweh and said, O Lord Yahweh, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them and his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength bowed. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father, he had judged Israel 20 years. So, uh, yes, back to your uh, imagery here. Obviously, we literally have our uh, anti-hero, anti-type, Christ figure, however you want to describe him, standing with his arms outstretched in his final moments, uh, sacrificing himself to also avenge Well, his own eyes, he says, but we also know from the very beginning that the Lord is using him to judge the Philistines. Yeah, his he's this is uh, clearly cruciform, as we call it. His his arms are stretched out 
And again, he's in the heart of the enemy's lair or land or place. And so he destroys them. He utterly wipes them out in this in this cruciform way, which would not be lost on the children of Israel for generations to come. This is probably the greatest of the stories of the judges, the greatest of the accounts of the judges. It's certainly the last one. You know, after that, there's no judges left. Um, but this is this is a capstone on the imagery that is given to us in these accounts. And the greatest of the images that we can find is Samson killing more Philistines in his death than he killed in his life. And he does it with his two arms. In the work of our hands, establish thou it, as Moses would say in Psalm 90. Um, that just came to mind. But my goodness, that that's what Christ does to his enemies in his crucifixion. Uh, this is the uh, this is the true meaning of his descent into hell. He destroyed the devil's kingdom. He brought down the enemy. He was in the midst of the land of the Philistines. And and you know the way that the way that I would even uh, possibly find occasion to preach on the descent into hell is simply to call Christ our Samson, who defeats the Philistines in the heart of their city. I mean that, that's just such a gripping image. And uh, he he's avenged. Well, he's not only avenged, but of course, the honor of God is avenged because up to this point, we haven't seen this. Now, um, it's sort of it's sort of you might say, uh, if I could say this uh, in a kind of a <laughs> in a kind of a colloquial way, it gets God's goat when you say or when someone says, "Our God has done this. Dagon has done this." That's that's bound to meet with divine opposition in the Old Testament, and certainly it does. You know, God's, God's not going to put up with this, and now you're going to see the greatest of all images as these enemies of the Lord are utterly destroyed by Samson, the champion who is once again in the thick of being the judge that he was meant to be in his death. I think That's that... What you bring up about Dagon, you know, them giving credit to Dagon, who, by the way, is like a grain god. He's sometimes depicted as like fish-like or like a merman. He's, like he's a the god fish or something. Yeah, yeah, and he's the he's the father of Baal, who obviously is a very famous god in the uh, biblical accounts. But in any case, we have Dagon here getting the credit, and I guess when you said that, my mind immediately went to God getting glory over the gods of the Egyptians. So we have here him getting glory over the gods of the Philistines, and I think that should be very um, worrisome to people because here's the deal. God often will get judgment over, as you put, you know, gets his goat. I like that because, you know, he gets judgment over the gods of these nations. I think today, who are the gods that people make for themselves? And really, it's ourselves. We're making ourselves our own gods, and we're putting our own emotions and even intellect and so-called wisdom over and against God. And so when God gets glory over the gods, if we've made ourselves the gods, I think we should be extra worried. And I think we also see here uh, the point that is often made and is worth making again, that Samson's hair is still gone. And yet here he has this strength to collapse this house 
upon which there are, and it must be a bit, pretty big place, um, upon which there are 3,000 people just on the roof. Um, so the strength of God, you, there's no way anybody could credit Samson in this last and final um, display. Uh, but we certainly don't want yeah. to take away anything from Samson, who sacrifices himself uh, to, for God to be able to get glory over the gods of the world. Well, clearly, uh, as, as I think you're absolutely right, what Samson does here, for the first time, he calls upon God to do it. And so it's utterly clear that, that this is Samson not trusting his own strength, but trusting in the strength of God. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's clear that, um, that the Philistines, this is another thing that I find fascinating about this, that all of these terrible things that happen as you're watching or as you're hearing, you're going through these, these details of Samson's life. You're thinking, oh, man, this, is, this imagery is all falling apart. Things are not working out. Samson's just, how can he be a Christ figure? He's just such a, such a sinner, such a horrible person, and all these things are going wrong, and it's just fizzling out and everything. And then at the end, God sets up the imagery just where he wants it and performs it reminds me in a in a sort of in a sort of a way of the tor- terrible events that led up to the crucifixion of our lord god is always in utter control of all history even though god uses the evil men for good purposes he there's nothing that's outside of his sway and control and that becomes abundantly clear in the end of the samson account and it it leaves us with a very clear understanding that there are no gods but the one true God, the Lord whom Samson calls upon. And he he defeats his enemies by sacrifice, as we know. The sacrifice of the ultimate, the greater Samson. That is... uh... Certainly, an amazing, an amazing connection. You know, we we look at this and we wonder sometimes. You know, why are we given these stories? And and certainly, Samson, for instance, as the other judges, there are twelve mentioned. Maybe there were more than that in actuality, uh, but some are received very little uh, pages. <laughs> some of them receive many, many chapters. And even among just Samson's exploits. He served for 20 years, so there's probably lots of things they could have have told us about. But the ones they do, the ones the the author and the Holy Spirit, of course, choose to reveal to us um, are for a purpose. And so we have to look back and we think, well, you know, why why is is Samson's, uh, you know, his struggle with uh, the ladies and his overreaction a lot of times to what happens, why are those things told to us? And then, of course, we look at this at the end, and at least for Samson, it becomes, especially as you explain it, very clear. And it really is a understanding that at the end of the day, God is the one in control. God is the one who saves. God can use even the evil in our lives and even the evil that we do for the good of his mission, his plan, and those who love him. I mean, it certainly doesn't give us permission to just live in sin, but at the same time, it reminds us that God is not bound by our sin. And Samson's a perfect example of that. And as you have put it, puts points forward to Christ. And what, you know, what better message could there be? It, it reminds me in a way of the uh, genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, 
which points out all of the sinners and the sins they commit in the genealogy even of Christ himself. Well, <laughs> what are we going to do with that? The, 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 the line of Israel, whether of the Messiah himself or of the rulers and leaders of Israel that are not in his line, is far from perfect. Of course it's far from perfect. It's, it's a fallen world. What do you expect? But God is able to use it for his ultimate goal of defeating all evil and rescuing his people from sin. So it's a good thing to be talking about it during Eastertide, too, I would add. Yeah, especially, yeah, especially during Easter. Well, um, we're, we're coming up on the end of the program. You know, you beautifully have summed it all up, but is there anything else you want to share with the listeners before we wrap up? Well, I don't know. I, 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 I was thinking about this, as I mentioned it briefly, uh, something that came to mind that we hadn't talked about much, and that is the, the, um, the, the fact of Samson's birth and his barren mother. We don't often get this. It's very uncommon. I think there's about seven times in all in the Old Testament, maybe six or so, of, of barren women being whose wombs are opened. And they are open for Christ figures. There's also um, the case of, of Moses and his birth. The birth of these deliverers, whatever kind they are, is not always given. But in the case of the greater ones, the ones perhaps that God wants us to sit up and take special notice of, their their beginning is is also mentioned. And we can see more evidence there that these were particularly meant to be seen as Christ figures, I think. I mean, there's tons I more, agree. of course. We, yeah, we did discuss, you know, at the very at the nativity of of Samson, how there are so many connections with the nativity of our Lord, um, and, and certainly not in a perfect way, but in a way that makes us, you know, perk our ears open, you know, makes us pay attention and say, God's telling us something here. Yes. Well, folks, I'd uh, like to thank you for tuning in today, and I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kewanee, Illinois. Pastor, thanks again for being on the show. I look forward to when you come on again. It's been a pleasure. I always appreciate it. Have a good, have a good continuation of this great show. <laughs> thank you, brother. Folks, tomorrow's chapter shifts gears a little bit, introduces us to a man named Micah. Micah has stolen some silver from his mother, and he admits it to her because he finds out that she placed a curse on whoever took it. Well, both distraught, they plan to uh, override the curse, and they do so by fashioning an idol, building a shrine to it, ordaining one of their sons, and eventually they, they, he hires a traveling Levite to be his personal priest. In other words, they demonstrate just how far the Israelites had departed from the proper worship of God. We're going to cover it all tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. 